In the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Cinderella, Cinderella tells her grandmother about her wish to go to the ball, a wish so great that if all the wishes of all the girls who ever wanted to go to a ball turned into one big wish, it wouldn't be bigger than my wish. But she laments, it seems so impossible. Of course, we know the rest of the story. After the big show-stopping number, it's possible Cinderella's impossible dreams come true. She has her coach, she has her horses, she has her glass slippers, she even has her prince at the end of the story. It's a wonderful story for children who dream big dreams and for adults who remember the magic of childhood. But for most of us, the cold, hard reality of the world breaks in sooner or later. There isn't always a fairy godmother figure who can make the impossible possible. Stories don't always have a happy ending. Relationships break. Resources run dry. Promises are broken. And at the time, just prior to the birth of Jesus, some may have wondered if God had broken his promises. Some thousand years before the angel appeared to Mary, God had made a big promise to King David. Up to our reading in 2 Samuel today, David's life had been de defined by struggle. He'd been the eighth brother, so unimportant that when, the pro when Samuel came to anoint a new king, he wasn't among the other brothers. He was so unimportant, he was relegated to shepherding duty. He fought Goliath with nothing but a sling and a few stones. He was welcomed into Saul's court, but if you remember the story, he had to be pretty quick on his feet there to avoid Saul's periodic raging. Then after he fell out with Saul, he was on the run with his companions. After Saul died, a civil war followed between David and Saul's loyalists. Finally, in this chapter, David has rest for the first time. He's been made king of Israel and Judah. The kingdom is united. There is finally, at long last, a modicum of peace. So what does David decide to do with this new peaceful time? Well, embark on a building project, of course. But God reminds David that God needs no fancy building. No house of cedar. I know that's a risky thing to point out when we worship in this beautiful building that we're still paying the mortgage on, but it's still no less true. God has never needed a house to be with God's people. God has been with them in their enslavement, in their desert journey, in their entry into the land. God needs no house. Rather, God promises to build David a house, so to speak, an enduring royal dynasty, a kingdom, an eternal kingdom with one of his sons at the helm. But some 400 years after this promise was made, it appeared to be broken. Israel and Judah came under foreign domination. The monarchy of David and his sons came to a brutal end. And despite a brief period of semi-independence in the second century BC, there was no sign of a promised heir. Rather, Rome had tightened its grip over the region. 
They put a client king in charge, Herod the Great, the aforementioned Grinch, who was so brutal that the Emperor Augustus once quipped, I'd rather be Herod's sow than Herod's son. The joke being, since Herod was Jewish, he wouldn't eat pork, but heaven help you if you were a family member he thought was disloyal. The people suffered under oppressive governments, an emperor who styled himself divine, a whacked-out paranoid client king, and priests who colluded with the regime. It was a dim, dim time for many people. Yet God did something totally unexpected. The messenger Gabriel went to a small town on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, to Nazareth in Galilee. Not to Bethlehem of Judea, the birthplace, the hometown of King David and the identified future hometown of the Messiah, according to the prophet Micah. Not to Jerusalem, the home of the temple and the center of the universe to observant Jews. And not to Rome, the imperial capital. Gabriel went to an unmarried Galilean Jewish teenage girl in a backwater town of a backwater province and told her that she, she would give birth to the Son of God to the heir of King David's throne. And he would reign forever. In other words, God chose the wrong person from the wrong social strata, from the wrong town, from the wrong geographical region, from the wrong kind of Jew, to carry God's own son, conceived in the wrong way. Impossibility compounded by impossibility. Mary knew this, which is why she asked Gabriel how this could happen at all. After a brief explanation and the example of her relative Elizabeth, Gabriel tells Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. By these impossibilities, God's promise not only becomes possible, but fulfillable. God's promise to David, long dead, comes to fruition. God's promise to his people, long suffering and oppressed, is made known. God doesn't follow the script that we human beings might have written for this. But God is faithful and keeps the promise of an eternal kingdom with the son of David on the throne. And God does this in a surprising way. Jesus will not be a monarch after other monarchs. He won't be a king like every other king. His kingdom won't be like all other earthly kingdoms. It won't be a political reality that you can point to on a map. It won't be defended with armies. Order won't be enforced with violence or the threat of violence, as every other king, despot, or executive in history has done. Rather, his reign will be done with his people. Jesus rules with his people, among his people, among people like Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, even among people like you and me. All we do as God's people is emulate Mary's response. She didn't sneer and say, impossible. She didn't go straight to trying to understand how all of this would work. She didn't think she was hallucinating or going crazy. She was simply open, open to God 
working in and through her, open to the possible impossibility of carrying the author of life within her womb. As Mary was God-bearer, so are we called to be God-bearers too, to carry the infinite within us, to be representatives of his reign that continues to be glimpsed in surprising ways, ways like a quilt being delivered to a person in Ukraine or Lebanon, ways like a Christmas meal shared at the First Congregational Church, ways like a life change through overcoming addiction, Ways like letters advocating on behalf of food insecure families written to members of Congress. Ways like a few bucks, a small donation, helping to serve lunch to hungry kids in Madagascar. It's in those ways that the impossible is seen as possible in a surprising way. It's not because of the works themselves, but because of what they point to. And they point to Christ and his eternal reign with his people. Because these little things done by people open to being God-bearers as Mary was points to the true greatness of Christ. Christ overcomes evil and reigns in the world not through violence, but through shalom. Not through hatred and identity politics, but through knitting unlikely people together into his body. Not through being right or orthodox or pure, but, but by taking the world's judgment and rejection on his very self. That's the reality we point to by being God-bearers, as Mary was. When we answer that call, we show the whole world that with God, all things are truly possible. Amen.